0: A quick note to listeners, this episode has graphic descriptions that some people may find disturbing.
1: Why, given that workplaces were so dangerous uh, at that time and workers had so few protections, what was it about this industrial accident that made a difference in the world when so many others had been quickly forgotten?
0: March 25, 1911, was a beautiful day in New York, the first real spring day of the year. On that Saturday, people filled parks and public spaces as they emerged to enjoy the sun. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory stood across the street from Washington Square Park, at the corner of Green Street and Washington Place. The park was a spot where every part of the city seemed to come together. Immigrant workers from the Lower East Side, students at New York University, wealthy women shopping the department stores along Broadway. Around 4.45 that afternoon, one of the many people sitting or strolling there, a reporter named William Gunn Shepard, saw a puff of smoke coming from the roof of the Triangle building. At the same moment, directly below the building, several people heard a small explosion. Then glass rained down from a window many stories above. Smoke poured out. Someone ran to a fire alarm box. The placid day was soon shattered by the sound of sirens and bells from every direction as horse-drawn fire engines converged on the scene. Frightened workers began to emerge from the building. The sidewalks filled with spectators as police tried to keep the crowd back and let firemen through. Large bundles began to fall from the windows of the ninth floor where the shirtwaists were sewn. Look, said someone pointing up, they're trying to save the best cloth. But then the crowd realized that those were not bundles of cloth. William Shepard would later write, I learned a new sound, a more horrible sound than description can picture. It was the thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire lasted fewer than 30 minutes and killed 146 people, most of them young women. The disaster's aftermath would lead to sweeping labor reforms, workplace safety regulations, and worker protection laws we still have today. It would turn Democrats into a working-class progressive party, and it would, more than 20 years down the road, help usher a young Franklin D. Roosevelt into office, paving the way for the New Deal. I'm Allison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. This is part two of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, the Inferno. The garment workers' strike the previous year had ended in victory for workers. Better pay, shorter hours, better conditions overall. But Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the owners of the Triangle Factory, had won something as well. Notoriety. Now, none of the garment factory owners were particularly thrilled during the general strike. But Blank and Harris had taken things to a whole nother level. It was Blank who came up with the idea of hiring prostitutes to attack women on the picket lines. And he also liked to use a psychopath known as Jack the Ripper for special assignments. One attack on a strike organizer at the factory left the man with a torn scalp and a macerated face that required over 30 stitches. And both men had shown a gift for psychological warfare. They brought in replacement workers and chauffeured limousines, and they were the ones who drove a rift between strikers and their wealthy supporters. Both Isaac Harris and Max Blank had got their start working in tenement sweatshops. People there might earn as little as $5 after 100 hours of labor. Tuberculosis spread so easily through the dank and crowded rooms that it was called the Taylor's disease. Many of the workers who actually survived these conditions became radicalized. They formed unions, they ran study groups, and founded newspapers to promote socialism and workers' rights. Other workers, though, like Blank and Harris, went the opposite way.
1: The Triangle factory owners were typical in the garment industry in that they themselves were immigrants who had uh, worked their way up from the sweatshops to become very prosperous owners.
0: That's David Vondrely, the author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America.
1: Around uh, 1895 or 96, they they went into business together making uh, women's blouses and were very successful Isaac Harris was more of the inside man. He was a tailor himself. He did a lot of the designing of the factory. Seems to have been a little bit more shy, retiring personality. Max Blank was a bigger, more outgoing personality, more of the salesman of the two. And by you know, 1909, the time of the strike, they were known as the Shirtwaist Kings of New York.
0: So, this shirtwaist, often shortened to just waist, was a crisp white cotton blouse. At the turn of the century, every woman wore one. The shirtwaist industry exploded, and Blank and Harris jumped on the opportunity. They'd opened a small tailor shop on Worcester Street in 1900 called the Triangle Waist Factory, but it wasn't nearly big enough for their ambitions. In 1901, the two men started looking skyward toward the new steel-framed high-rise buildings that were going up across the city. They moved their business into the top three floors of a new building on Washington Place and began to build their empire. The Singer sewing machine had transformed home sewing in the mid-1800s. In fact, it had made the sweatshop system possible just because one person could get so much more work done in the same amount of time. Owners like Harris used their big loft spaces to make these machines even more efficient.
1: The great innovation at factories like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was to put dozens of these uh, machines all connected to the same electrical power source so that workers no longer had to pedal to operate them.
0: Skilled operators could get 3,000 stitches a minute out of the electric machines put those machines in a place that held ten times the workers as a typical tenement building, and the scale of production was astronomical. Harris and Blank got very rich very quickly. They also got increasingly out of touch with the workers they'd once been. They didn't have time for complaints about low wages or long hours or injuries from the sped-up machines, not after what they had survived.
1: They, I'm sure, looked at their modern factory and compared it to the sweatshops that they had worked in as young men and felt like they were improving the conditions uh, for workers rather than, uh, you know, exploiting workers.
0: And it's true that these new buildings were a far cry from squalid tenements. But when your workplace is 10 stories high, that brings some new issues, issues that the Triangle owners hadn't really thought about.
1: They weren't conscious enough of the danger, and they they weren't alone. The explosion of high-rise building in New York at the start of the 20th century, this all happened without any planning and without a lot of thought about dangers unique to high-rise buildings, that a fire in a a high-rise is a different animal from a fire in a one or two story building where uh, even if you're trapped upstairs, you could potentially climb down or, or jump out. It was just at this moment dawning on the firefighters of uh, New York City that they had a real problem on their hands in uh, how to potentially fight fires high above the city streets.
0: And this is strange when you realize that fires weren't at all uncommon in these clothing factories. But then again, they weren't accidental either.
1: The garment industry generally, and Triangle Factory uh, specifically, were known for having fires in their factories at the end of seasons, you know, unexplained fires in the middle of the night that would just conveniently burn up a lot of unsold inventory that uh, they could then collect insurance on.
0: Despite these regular midnight blazes, fire safety was not a huge concern for factory owners. And the New York City officials would later claim that all these new buildings had been conceived for storage, not factory work. So it wasn't their fault that there were no safety regulations. As for the insurance industry, It was controlled by brokers who got better commissions on unsafe buildings, just because the premiums were so high. Factories like the Triangle collected big claims so often they were known as rotten risks, but they could still get insurance because the brokers found the big commissions so profitable. Everyone won, except the workers. Now, in my research, there was a lot of disagreement on how big an issue safety actually was during the strike. Workers certainly complained about dangerous workplaces, but pay and hours appear to have been far bigger concerns. Organizers talked a lot about better conditions, but they seemed to focus more on how workers were treated, not necessarily how safe they were. In the inevitable horse trading, demands for sprinkler systems and fire escapes got dropped pretty quickly. During the strike, The Forward, a Yiddish newspaper, had covered the triangle in detail, especially the violent actions of its owners. With blood, this name will be written in the history of American workers, they wrote. And the paper was right, but for the wrong reasons. Coming up, after the break, 18 Minutes That Changed America. March 25th was a Saturday, so work ended early at the Triangle Factory, around 4.45 in the afternoon.
1: The young women in the factory were getting ready to have Saturday night. In many cases, you know, going out uh, on the town with their boyfriends or fiancés. Picture, you know, a high school classroom or college uh, campus at the end of, uh, of the work week. That was the mood.
0: The triangle occupied the 8th, ninth, and 10th floors of the building. The 10th floor held the owners' offices, along with sales and shipping, Most of the sewing happened on the ninth floor, and on the eighth floor, fabric was cut and pieced together.
1: Cutting was a highly skilled job and well-paid job, mostly done by men because uh, you had to be strong to cut through dozens of layers of fabric all at one time with these long cutting knives. One of the innovations at the Triangle was that under the cutting tables, they had created uh, scrap bins right there. So it was very easy to sweep the scraps off the table and into the bin, and it saved space and saved time.
0: Okay, a scrap bin doesn't sound like a big deal, but these were massive, the size of the tables themselves.
1: So... It had been a few weeks since the bins had been emptied. They were very full of cotton scraps.
0: The shirtwaists were made of a light cotton fabric called lawn. It's incredibly flammable, even more than the paper patterns that lay everywhere.
1: So here's this room packed with hundreds of pounds, certainly, of highly flammable light cotton scraps. And There was a rule in the factory against smoking, and there were no smoking signs posted around the factory in English and Yiddish and Italian, which were the languages of the triangle. But the cutters were so highly skilled and so much in demand that they really were not rule followers. And so it appears that as closing time uh, approached, the cutters... Uh, lit up their cigarettes and either a cigarette butt or a match uh, went into one of these bins and uh, fire just exploded. Within about five minutes, the uh, entire 9,000 square feet of the eighth floor was full of flames.
0: Each floor had buckets of water in case of accidental fire, and several cutters quickly grabbed them and poured them on the flames. But a few buckets were no match for what was happening. Fire leaped from table to table, fueled not only by the scraps under the tables, but by all the tissue paper patterns dangling over them. The building had entrances on both Green Street and Washington Place, with elevators and stairwells at each. Workers had to use the Green Street side, and on the eighth floor they had already lined up to leave for the day. They had to show their handbags to a night watchman as they left just to make sure they hadn't stolen anything and a wooden partition let only one person through at a time. Right behind that partition was the freight elevator. As the fire began to spread, that elevator acted like a giant chimney, drawing fresh air up to feed the flames. The workers at that side of the building stampeded toward the narrow stairway next to the elevator. But the doors to that stairwell opened inward, and people struggled to get through. Other people saw the crush and ran in the opposite direction, toward the stairs and elevators by Washington Place. Still others climbed over tables toward a small fire escape. Somehow, in the chaos, all of the 180 or so people on that floor made it to safety. Dina Lipschitz, a timekeeper on the floor, had a telephone at her desk. She was one of the first to see the fire, and rather than running, tried calling the other floors to warn them. On the 10th floor, the switchboard operator now shouted to a bookkeeper to call the fire department. As the alarm spread, people started to panic, crowding the vestibule on both sides of the building. The Green Street elevator shaft was already full of flames. Owner Isaac Harris took control, herding terrified women into the Washington Place elevator and telling its operator to come right back up, bypassing the other two floors. As the elevator descended for the second time, flames began entering the 10th floor through the windows, which were shattering in the heat. Girls, he shouted, get up on the roof! He led a group of women up the Green Street staircase, which was already beginning to burn. As they crowded up, their clothes and hair smoked, then began to ignite. The fire was blowing right in their faces, Harris would later recall. Once they got on the roof, though, there was nowhere to go. There were buildings on either side of the triangle, but they were 15 feet higher, too high to jump or climb. Harris and another man threw themselves at the wall of one building and somehow hauled themselves up, using a wire that was attached to the building's side. That rooftop door was locked, so Harris smashed a skylight with his bare hand, badly cutting himself. A janitor in that building heard him yelling and rushed to bring a stepladder, which the men lowered to the roof below. There was still a six-foot gap, so Harris and the other man pushed and shoved frightened girls up like packages. One woman had to be pulled up by her hair. The behavior of the two owners during the fire is striking, and I think it says something about each man. Harris kept his wits and helped save dozens of people at great risk to himself. Max Blank, on the other hand, was paralyzed with fear. Even though he had two young daughters with him that day, he couldn't decide which way to go and just stood outside his office looking back and forth and back and forth. He had to be rescued by a shipping clerk named Eddie Markowitz, who managed to coax Max and his daughters to safety. The man who was so good at organizing violence against others was helpless when faced with it himself. In another building next door, a group of NYU law students were attending a lecture when they heard fire sirens. A minute or so later, they heard screams just outside. They rushed up and out onto their roof and saw dozens of women emerging from the smoke directly below them. Painters had left ladders in the law building, and the students were able to lower them and help workers up onto their building and to safety. Ironically, a professor at NYU had reported crowded and unsafe conditions at the triangle only a few months before. He'd gotten no response from city officials. So within minutes of the fire's start, the 8th and 10th floors had mostly escaped. But remember how Dinah on the 8th floor called to warn people on 9 and 10?
1: Unfortunately, the way that telephone system worked, it had to be connected through the 10th floor switchboard to call back down to the 9th floor. And when that switchboard operator heard there was a fire, she dropped her phone and ran. And so there was no way to telephone the 9th floor. And so precious minutes were lost.
0: People on the 9th floor had no idea what was happening above and below them.
1: The 9th floor, this was the main sewing plant of the Triangle at 4:45 there was a bell that rang uh this signaled the end of the day people pushed back from their chairs and started trying to move up these you know crowded aisles between the sewing machine rows to you know go collect their uh, handbags or their coats or whatever and leave for the day the first they knew of the fire was when they saw it outside the windows burning up boiling up from the 8th floor
0: There were maybe 250 people on the ninth floor. They were gathering in the cloakrooms, chatting or standing around, rummaging in their handbags for their time cards. By the time they realized what was happening, several escape routes no longer existed.
1: Some of the workers ran to the fire escape, but remember there were workers from the eighth floor already out there on the fire escape, working their way down. The fire escape very quickly became overcrowded. It tore away from the wall and collapsed and 25 people fell to their deaths in the airway in the back of the building. Over on the Green Street side where the freight elevators were, the operators of the freight elevator apparently ran away as soon as they learned of the fire. So there was nobody to operate those elevators. No one could get out that way. The stairway was very quickly cut off by flames, so people weren't able to go down those stairs.
0: Now, also by this time, most of the people on the 10th floor were already on the roof. The stairwell leading from 9 to 10 was filling with fire. Eddie Markowitz, the same young man who'd saved blank, emerged from the flames and shouted to the girls to follow him up. Many did. They hopped up on the sewing tables and leaped from one to another to avoid the flames now rushing in from the windows and air shaft. They wrapped their clothing around their heads and faces and rushed into the stairwell. When they emerged onto the roof, the law students helped them put out their smoldering clothes and hair. Meanwhile, on the other side of the building?
1: Then on that other side, there were those passenger elevators, and the, the operators of those elevators really are uh, the heroes of the Triangle Fire. Two Italian immigrants who just kept running their elevator cars over and over again past the flames of the eighth floor to rescue people on the ninth floor. But when they left with their overcrowded elevators for the last time, it was clear they wouldn't be coming back. And workers started leaping into the elevator shaft trying to escape on top of the, the sinking cars. A number of workers died in that elevator shaft. And then there was that stairway next to those elevators. And unfortunately, the door to those stairs was
0: locked. This was the Washington Street stairwell. It was kept locked to make workers use the Green Street entrance, where they had their bags searched. A manager on the eighth floor had a key. No one on the ninth floor did.
1: And uh, because that door was locked, there was... no other way out of the factory, and people began jumping from the windows.
0: It was a horrifying spectacle. The reporter, William Shepard, watched from the street below and later described a young man helping girls out the window. He wrote, He looked like a man helping a woman onto a streetcar before letting her go. He held out a second girl in the same way and let her drop. Then he held out a third girl. They didn't resist. Then, quick as a flash, he was on the window sill himself. His coat flattened upward, and I could see that he wore tan shoes and hose. Shepard went on to write of the man. He had done his best. Now, fire engines had converged on the building in minutes. Firemen cranked up ladders, but those ladders couldn't go higher than the sixth floor. They held out nets, but those nets weren't designed to catch people jumping from such a height. Some fire hoses didn't have enough pressure to be effective ten stories up. The Triangle Fire was proof of how woefully unprepared fire crews were for these new high-rises.
1: Ultimately, 146 people died in the Triangle Fire, most of them young women and girls, uh, 23 of them were young men, all while thousands, literally thousands of eyewitnesses were watching it happen. It was a terribly shocking
0: event. And it happened with shocking speed. As near as we can tell, the fire broke out around 441 and reached the ninth floor around 446. By 451, people had started to jump. In roughly 18 minutes, everyone on those three floors had been rescued or died. Now, the Triangle was by no means the first industrial disaster in America, and it wasn't the worst. But it was the most visible. This wasn't some tenement fire hidden down on the Lower East Side or a mining disaster deep underground. This happened in the middle of the largest city in the U.S. and in full view of everyone.
1: Washington Square at that time was really where rich New York and working-class New York Came together. That's where they met. Downtown met uh, uptown, in a sense. And it was a true melting pot of New York that saw this happen, that experienced it.
0: And more importantly, almost everyone watching knew these women, in a way. We talked about this in depth in the previous episode how they'd captured the attention of the entire city only a year before during the strike. People had admired their courage, their spunk, their determination to make their lives better. Now they saw them lose those lives in the same factory they had picketed, whose owners had reacted so violently and so viciously against them. One thing that really hit home with me was the behavior of the police. After the fire, they combed the wreckage, searching for remains, except many of them couldn't. They broke down after an hour and had to be replaced. And those replacements, they broke down too. These were the same police who had beaten, threatened, and arrested these women just months before, or turned a blind eye when they were attacked. Now they just couldn't bear to look, period. Immediately after the fire, newspapers, activists, and politicians all called for blood. Someone had to pay for what had happened.
1: There was, of course, an investigation of the fire. The district attorney determined that he was going to try to hold uh, the factory owners responsible. So he charged them with uh, manslaughter, negligent homicide.
0: It all came down to that locked door on the ninth floor. If Harris and Blank were responsible for keeping it locked during working hours, they were responsible for the deaths that resulted from it.
1: Uh, there was a trial at the end of 1911. It lasted three weeks. Uh, the owners uh, did what any rich person would do. In those days, they hired a attorney named Max Stoyer, just a tremendous lawyer, uh, very skilled.
0: The lawyer called multiple survivors to the witness stand, all of whom agreed that the door had been locked. Their testimony was shattering, as they described watching their friends and co workers hurl themselves against the door, only to be overcome and then die in the flames. But by taking them through their testimony over and over, Stoyer began to make it seem rehearsed, using the same phrases again and again. Though he never came right out and accused the witnesses of being coached, he sowed enough doubts in the jurors' mind.
1: Ultimately, they were acquitted at the end of the trial and. Um they they paid very little financial or and certainly no legal price for the for the Triangle fire.
0: Public outrage was immediate. People shouted murderers at Blank and Harris as they left the courtroom. But there was nothing to be done. Except a lot of people just did not accept that. Maybe the triangle owners got off, but the blame, it went beyond a single locked door. It went to hoses that didn't work. It went to flammable materials that were allowed to pile up. Stairwells too narrow for more than one person at a time.
1: Going to work uh, at the turn of the 20th century was an incredibly dangerous thing to do in America. People were dying on the job by the scores every week, and in all kinds of ways and fires, yes, but also mine collapses, uh, railroad accidents, machinery would have no uh, guards on it. Clothing would get caught in a machine, and they'd be dismembered. Uh, be no railings uh, on the catwalks over, you know, boiling water or molten steel. It, it, horrible, horrible deaths all the time, and people would literally refer to these as, quote unquote, acts of God, as if there were no way that you could conceivably uh, protect workers on the job. Why, given that workplaces were so dangerous at that time, and workers had so few protections, what was it about this industrial accident that made a, a difference in the world when so many others had been quickly forgotten and to understand that, the first thing you have to do is is get uh, clear in your head how close this fire was to the great strike of the year before, how uh, important the Triangle Factory was in terms of, of the history of the strike. It was the flashpoint of the strike in many ways. So now... It's as if the claims of the strikers and the claims of the working class generally were written in blood, literally, on the sidewalks of New York.
0: The Triangle Fire now resonated far beyond the Garment District.
1: The greatest impact of the, of the Triangle Fire was a political one.
0: Tammany Hall, as we mentioned in the previous episode, was the democratic political machine, and it had run New York since the late 1800s. It operated on a system of bribes and favors and had never been interested in reform. In fact, Tammany politicians had mostly been on the side of the factory owners during the strike.
1: But Tammany was facing a crisis by 1911.
0: The German and Irish immigrants that had been the heart of the Tammany machine, they'd moved on. The new wave of Italian and Jewish immigrants were unreliable at the ballot box.
1: The bosses of Tammany Hall at this time were really on the lookout for something they could do to appeal to these new immigrants and to make them into democratic voters, especially these uh, socialist uh, voters uh, around the labor movement. The Triangle Fire created an opportunity for the machine to deliver results on something that these new immigrants cared about.
0: At that time, the Democrats controlled the state legislature, not just New York City. They began an investigation into all factories.
1: That Factory Investigating Commission uh, ultimately passed the most sweeping set of worker protections that America had ever seen. And guess what? It worked. It was hugely popular with uh, these immigrant voters, and they rewarded Tammany Hall by electing one of the chairmen of the Factory factory Investigating Commission, a guy named Alfred E. Smith.
0: Smith would go on to become governor of New York in 1923 on the same pro-labor platform. And in 1929, he was followed by his political successor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who became president in 1933. Another man on the factory commission, Robert Wagner, would work with Roosevelt to create the New Deal, including massive protections for workers and programs for the unemployed. And there was one important figure in the national fight for labor rights who had a direct link to the Triangle Fire. Frances Perkins, the first woman to serve in a presidential cabinet, was Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. And back in 1911, she had watched the Triangle burn.
1: She was one of those people enjoying the beautiful weather in Washington Square. When the fire broke out, she was one of the people as a young social worker who ran to the scene and saw people jumping and falling to their deaths. She then was one of the uh, key staff members and investigators for the uh, commission. And she became you know, as transformative a figure in the history of uh, labor and worker protection as any of the men that I mentioned. Near the end of her life, at the 50th anniversary commemoration of the Triangle Fire, she went back to that spot where she had watched people die and said in her speech that if Americans ever want to understand where the New Deal came from, where the rise of urban liberalism came from, where worker protections came from, that was the spot, the Triangle Fire.
0: I want to dedicate this episode to my mother, Elizabeth Claire Korleski. She was the first person to tell me about the Triangle Factory Fire and more importantly, why it mattered. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Deisha Clay and Julia Pillard helped edit. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer.